That is our objective, to democratise access to alternative investments, including property, because I think well, we, our view is that, you know, up until now, all of the most lucrative gains were taken by um, a, a specific and elite group of people. That comes with equity risk. Of course it does. But that opportunity has, until now, just not been available to most people for 10 grand or 20 grand. Uh, welcome, everybody, to the uh, Fincia podcast. Today, I've got Steve Marvani with me uh, of Venture Crowd. We're going to talk about crowdfunding, how, how it's doing, the ins and outs. But uh, rather for me, I'll, I'll hand over to Steve and get him to give us a bit of background about uh, his connection to it, Venture Crowd, and where we're at now. Steve, welcome. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, mate. Thanks for having me. Um, and thanks for taking an interest in this sort of merging area of digital finance and alternative finance. Crowdfunding is sort of a, a part of that. But, um, you know, the topic is obviously broader. So I appreciate you elevating it um, as, a, as, a, as a topic of relevance for, for investors. I think that's, that's sensible. So I guess so my background is I'm a corporate lawyer. Um, I was a former partner of PricewaterhouseCoopers here in Sydney, um, and I ran the venture capital practice um, on the legal side. I was at PwC for 10 years, and during that time, we set up many of the venture capital funds around the country that you, you might know, you know, Tankstream Ventures, Blue Chile, Sydney Angels, all of the artesian funds. National Australia Bank and a bunch of others, um, Australia Post and so on. So we spent a lot of time in my practice working on traditional venture capital fund managers, fund structures, and helping those fund managers sort of build their position in the Australian market. And we did that in a period where venture capital in Australia was, you know, not not even a thing. (laughs) um, People had no idea what venture capital was and they certainly weren't interested in it. It was tiny, right? But over that 10-year period, it kind of grew around me and around us, and we just found ourselves at the right place at the right time. By the end of it, we were one of the, I guess, one of the leading practices in the country, um, building venture capital funds for fund managers, and we were very fortunate to work on some really significant stuff like the, um, you know, I mentioned the NAB Ventures Fund, Australia Post, Artesian, but also um, the Real Tech We'll take Ventures Fund for the Taronga Group, which is now backed by CBRE and Dexas and all these other amazing people. So venture has come a long way. And while I was at PwC, you know, immersed in the venture space, um, I was also giving the thought leadership for the firm on venture capital nationally. And in doing that about sort of five or six years ago, I was looking at the growth of digital venture capital or crowdfunding, right, in the Northern Hemisphere and looking at the numbers and how they were increasing and so on. And the trend appeared to be heading in a very clear um, upwards direction. And the view we had to take as a firm was if that continues, what impact will that have on traditional venture capital and what does that mean for investors? And after lots of back and forth, some people said, look, that's that's rubbish. Um, that's not something, it's a blip in the radar. Don't worry about it. It's too small to... But in the end, the view that, that I took was that if it's not a blip in the radar, we don't want to miss it. And so um, I went to the market and the view that we took was digital 
funding into venture capital opportunities, if that continues to grow, it's going to be a massive part of the venture capital space. So I had a conversation with um, the guys at Artesian who were clients of mine and had become friends and we decided to, and I suggested to them that they build an equity crowdfunding platform alongside their traditional VC business and that's what happened. So that's how Venture Crowd was born. So it was designed from a position, if you like, of immersion in the sector between myself and Artesian, who were, I guess, two stakeholders in Australian VC who were feeling the pain, if you like, of great companies trying to be funded and be funded efficiently and quickly in a market which is neither efficient or quick <laughs> um, and, in, and making that opportunity, the, the opportunity to back those kinds of companies available to as many people as possible. So VC had a very important role to play and still does and always will. And then beyond that, though, there is a self-directed investor group, and that's growing and growing and growing, that says, you know what, I don't want to put hundreds of thousands of dollars into a managed fund necessarily. I would prefer to back a biotech company that that means something to me or a retail consumer goods company that I understand for different reasons. You know, they want to make their own choices and back the things that are meaningful to them. And so there's a role for the growth of venture capital across um, a number of different kinds of investors from the crowd, if you like, all the way through to family offices and high net worths and so on and so on venture capital and then institutions and now, of course, super funds. So that was the view we took. I think we're seeing that play out now and we're seeing, you know, beautiful collaborations between institutional investors and, you know, ordinary investors who are putting, you know, ten dollars and $20,000 into something that means something to them. So the entire market's growing. That's a really good sign. The capital pool is growing. That's also a really good sign. And I think if you speak to founders now, they'll say, we have more options than we ever had before. And the positive thing at a policy level nationally is that this is, I think, keeping good founders in Australia longer (laughs) because um, capital was one of the things that was quite often luring them into foreign markets. So, you know, that's where I think it's been and that's where we are today, I think. From what you're saying, the disruption model we've seen in terms of fintechs uh, around the globe, just doesn't seem to fit into that mold and that it's more of a um, taking just a natural growth. And it isn't, and I'll ask this, you know, you know, is it putting fund managers to the sword? You know, with the fact that, you, you know, you're giving people another option. I, I, I hope not, you know, and I genuinely mean that. I hope not. And I, and I actually don't think it is. The, the view we always took was that it would be complementary as another source of capital that it's not always appropriate, right, for, for all founders to use equity crowdfunding. It doesn't suit everybody. It doesn't necessarily suit deep tech, for example. But, but to answer your question, it, it, it's, it's neither designed to do that nor is it actually doing that. What we're finding is that the collaborations we're having with institutional investors, and I can give you some examples, are actually a beautiful mix of both. So when you have a venture capital fund that has, for example, sector-specific expertise and the team behind that fund really knows their stuff in a particular sector, 
whether it's fintech or real estate technology or consumer goods or biotech, right? That's a very powerful partner for you to have on your cap table when you're a company in that space. There may also, though, be um, logic merit to the idea that in addition to that partner that serves that purpose beyond capital, crowdfunding serves another purpose also beyond capital. And that is in terms of engaging with your consumer base, engaging with the market more generally, building a um, an army of ambassadors, if you like, who have a vested interest in the growth of your business now. And you do that beyond simply one organisation. So I think they work really, really nicely together. And the conversation that I have with people is, it's one thing just to go to the market looking for capital. It's another thing to have a strategic objective which fast-tracks your growth initiatives. So that's the consideration that, that, that we like to encourage founders to have right up front, even when they come to us with no plan. And the answer to that may be, you know what, maybe we do need to talk to this VC or that VC, maybe period, and maybe it's that VC, this VC and that VC as well as a crowdfunding campaign alongside of it. And usually what we find is um, where there is no VC involved, let, let me rewind actually, I'll give you an example of a collaboration that works really, really well for us. So we just launched a partnership with Uniseed Uniseed is one of the most successful VCs in the country and what it does is it has exclusive rights to back the commercialisation, so the funding of IP that's coming out of University of Sydney, University of Melbourne, University of Queensland, University of New South Wales and CSIRO. And and that's all it does. It just looks at those five research organisations and it puts money into IP that it assesses coming out of those organisations. Now, we partnered with Uniseed to say, when you decide to back a piece of IP out of one of the research institutions like that, we can sit alongside of you and simply make the balance of that round available to the public. Now, if you're in um, so for example, we just we just closed a deal for a business called Cardihab, which came out of the University of Queensland with Uniseed. So Uniseed was in there, Artesian was in there, CSIRO was in there, and the crowd was in there. And what we found was that the people who were interested in the Cardihab deal were people who understood. Um, cardiac health and maybe had lived through it or had people in their lives that had suffered from that and they wanted to be part of a solution to that problem. Um, So I think they can complementary side by side. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it's interesting. And I'd actually read a little bit about Cardiac Health and that brings me on to another part, another question I was going to ask and things that, again, might not sit together, but you've got a, a huge membership. Uh, 60,000 plus. Traditionally, we look at fintechs and um, development of, of new forms of investing. And, you know, he just, the, 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 uh, the millennial word is, is used throughout. It is, is it millennials that are driving this? But, you know, I'm thinking that what you've just said about Cardio Hub, possibly some of the experts that may have been involved in that are people who unfortunately suffer. So uh, I just wonder what's the demographic for you of um, uh, your, your membership? And you know what's driving it? Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely a mix. So we have a range of investors that typically start at sort of the early thirties all the way through to um, late retirees, and they have a different risk appetite across those groups depending on their life stages. You'd expect yeah. it is absolutely the growth though in those numbers is absolutely being driven by millennials, and the reason for that I, I don't think will surprise anybody millennials are now moving into a stage of their lives where they're sort of hitting 40. 
they are a group of people who were born with a mobile phone in their hand. They're yeah. very, very yeah. doing digitally, right? They are yeah. not really that interested in being taken to lunch to be shown an investment opportunity. They just send me the details. I want to click on a phone on my on my own. I might run that through my peers and decide who else knows about this, who else is in, where do I get peer validation, how else can I validate digitally. And they're very comfortable validating digitally than making an investment digitally. So this idea that to invest in an alternative asset, which is what we do, venture capital is just one of those asset classes, you need to be able to eyeball a founder. Those days are gone. And that's not to say that that won't continue to happen. Of course it will, but it doesn't need to be the case. And most of our investors simply want access to the information. They want it really, really efficiently and they want to be able to invest without speaking to anybody. And that is absolutely being driven by millennials. The other thing that I think is really, really important about millennials, and again, this won't be a surprise, I'm sure, to your your listeners, millennials are about to become the beneficiaries of the largest intergenerational transfer of wealth in modern memory. So within the sort of two to three to four years, the most important financial services customer will be a millennial, right? And so if I'm a financial services organisation, whether I'm in investment management or I'm in a bank, the way I engage with the most important group of consumers I have, the the financial services buyer, that's going to have to be completely, you know, reconsidered. So for VentureCrowd, we always started there. We, We didn't come to this from a, oh, shit, we need to fix our processes moment. We... I guess we have always built the business expecting that trend would be upon us. And I think within the next three or five years, it very much will. So, yes, it's being driven by millennials. It's absolutely being driven by digitisation and the preference to to receive and to engage digitally. And I think all of the macro tailwinds are supporting the fact that if you're in financial services, if you're in investment management and you're not delivering products in a way millennials want to receive them five years from now you're going to have a real problem yeah yes it's definitely something that keeps coming back and um, but that's uh, you know, uh, the problems uh, that uh, traditional financial services are going to have one thing I've seen you talk about is that you, you're expecting this kind of investing to, to, to be growing you know um, over the next few years yeah talk to us about what you know the numbers that you're put out there yeah, okay. So in the UK, where they've had retail crowdfunding legislation for um, it's about four years more than we have, about yeah. 38%, 38% of all venture capital funding that, that is, is made, that is deployed in the UK, is done digitally through one of two platforms. Now, if the UK is a comparable market to Australia, and I think it's fair to say it probably is, then um, within the next sort of two or three years from now, if those numbers, what we can expect, then, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars are going to flow through digital platforms into venture capital opportunities. And I'm not saying it's going to take from existing sources. I expect that it will be complementary and will be will grow the pie rather than anything else, but it is going to be a significant uh, amount of money. The, the other thing I'd say on the issue of growth is for Venture Crowd, what I've just described to you is one small part of what we do, right? It's retail crowdfunding for venture capital, but our business has always been built on the idea that that 
alone is really not enough. And if you look at this as a from a customer's perspective, what we think is going to happen is millennial investors are going to want access to alternative investments, right? Through one platform digitally, and they don't just want to be investing fifty bucks in a brewery. They want to know. They want access to first mortgage opportunities. They want to invest in property development opportunities. They want to invest in credit opportunities. They want to invest in funds. So across the spectrum of alternative assets, they want that access. And so we've built our business to say, you know, it's it's probably going to be pretty small if all we did was retail crowdfunding for venture capital. So we've grown beyond that. I don't know whether that answers your question as as tightly as you would have hoped, but I think that's all. You know, it's 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 fascinating to hear to talk about those numbers. Well, the one thing I'm curious about, knowing yeah. what you've got on your platform at the moment, is um, you, you know you do have a, a special speciality property section, property portfolio section. Yes, we, we you know we're seeing incredible eye-watering rises in residential properties. And, and we again, when it talks about millennials, even though they've got this wealth, there is this struggle to get on the, the, the homeowner uh, ownership market. Yes. Is there something? Is that your thinking behind that? I'm just curious about you know people can see that they can have a slice of this development here uh, as a way of getting themselves set up to actually buy a house down, down the line. Yeah, I, I, I think the entire property development capital stack is relatively is not very well understood. Um, and I think that's the case because for a long time, property has been funded by, you know, an, an elite group of specific people and it hasn't really, access to it has never been made that accessible, I think, to, to the broader group. But if I think about, um, you know, what it takes to buy a house in Sydney these days, um, you know, it's not unusual to be looking at a $2 million price tag. I mean, it's pretty extraordinary where it's going at the moment. How you get into that is beyond me. And, you know, I, I just don't know how people uh, are dealing with that challenge because it really is quite extraordinary. Um, if you add up the, the deposit that you're going to need plus the stamp duty that you're going to need and the rest of the on costs um, and then think about what can you actually even buy in Sydney anymore for that kind of price, um, you know, it's a daunting challenge. But if you have $10,000 in the bank or twenty or fifty even and your desire to invest in a property is, is because you expect the property market to, you know, um, grow well over the next 24, 12 to 24 months, then there are other ways to do that. Now, um, lots of people have known that for a long time, but, it, but access to it has been relatively limited. And so what we've tried to do is to say, okay, when a property starts at a piece of raw dirt and then value is added through rezoning and the approvals stage that takes place, right, it goes from X to Y in that 12-month period, there is a growth opportunity that belong, that that that. that investors want access to. Normally, that would go to a family office or, you know, a group of institutional investors and it would just close it out. We've intentionally tried not to do that. So, when we acquire property, we make the equity component available to the crowd on the website. Um, and we are finalising a retail property fund at the moment. Um, over the next sort of three months, that'll become live. And so, everything that we do online will be available to retail and wholesale investors. That's ultimately where we're trying to get to. 
So, for example, we've got a we've got a project out at um, Park Ridge in southeast Queensland that's forecasting a um, a return on the equity component over twenty four months of about thirty point four seven percent. That comes with equity risk, of course it does. But that opportunity has, until now, just not been available to most people for ten grand or twenty grand. So you can be property developer for that price. So you're in the property market, taking advantage of property upside at an equity level um, for ten thousand dollars or twenty thousand um, dollars. That is our objective: to democratise access to alternative investments, including property. Because I think, well, we our view is that you know up until now. All of the most lucrative gains were taken by um, a, a specific and elite group of people. And then yeah. when you get to the end of it, right, it's like, well, now we've built it. Would you like to buy our apartments? And we think the, the upside is, you know, 5 6 7% a year. I just don't think that's good enough. <laughs> we yeah. don't think that's good enough. So we try to make um, the entire capital stack from equity, preference equity, mezzanine debt, first mortgage, and then, because we have a property business, we can sell the properties at the end. So if you want to buy them, you can still buy them or sell them too. But the entire development process is a, is a series of financial products which is available to everybody. So that is, and that is our, that is our ethos. I think, yeah, that's it. Well, I think I'm, I'm going to round off around that on that positive piece of news of, uh, you know, democratising uh, property investment because it is a, uh, something for a lot of people out there, <laughs> whether they're younger millennials or a, a bit further down the track, is is almost impossible. Is there anything else we need to cover on this? Uh, uh, we've been going around and, and I think we've talked quite a lot. I just wanted to make sure that we haven't missed anything. Um, um, and I'll, I'll, I, I, we spoke earlier this year for an interview, and as I said I'd catch up with you now, which we're doing. So I think there's, there's there's more to be. We'll have to talk again later on. Um, Sure, our members will be really uh, interested in, in having listened to this. I'll probably want more. So, um... yeah, I mean, I would, I would just say, um, I, I think it's really important for investors to understand property development, and I think investors should understand venture capital. And I, I still think they don't as well as they should, and that's unfortunate because I think they're missing an opportunity. Right, so. One of the things we've tried to do is is educate the market, and it's complex, right? So basic questions come out of a discussion around venture capital, like, you know, when will distributions be paid? And you know, when you get asked those kinds of questions, that the market doesn't necessarily understand VC as well as it should. But it is highly lucrative. It can be. Sorry, let me rephrase. It can be highly lucrative. It also comes with high risk. But I think there's an education piece there, and yeah, I, I don't, I don't know really. We're, just, we're trying to address that by taking feedback from our market and delivering it in a number of different ways. But that could be something that you, your your members may be interested in understanding a little bit more because everything from the way you assess a VC deal to the sort of the time horizons for a return to, you know, the risks involved and how you allocate it as part of a diversified portfolio, all of that I think is a, is a valuable discussion for investors to think through. And the same with property understanding how equity works and how preference equity works because they can be quite lucrative parts of your um, investment portfolio. So I think a solid understanding of them, not just by individual investors but by financial planners as well, is critical. Okay. I think on that note, um, I'll say thanks again, Steve. I try to keep these not too long under the sort of 25, 30-minute mark. So um, but I really... 
really appreciate you spending the time to talk to us. And, uh, and I will... Uh...